uh, join us, Acts chapter number 2. Our kids are being dismissed, so anyone that would like to send their children, first through fifth grade, out to your right at this time, and the rest of us in the house here and online, thank you for joining us online, those of you doing that. Uh, Acts chapter number 3, we're beginning a new chapter this morning. I remember, as, as Victor was singing that opening verse, I remember the night uh, that, that the Lord came and rescued me. And I'll tell you what, death has a very strong grip. The death rate is 100%. It's going to take uh, something really strong to release death's grip. But uh, Jesus is stronger than death. And His blood has removed our sin and satisfied the holiness of God. And He took our sins on the cross and satisfied the justice of God. So what a waste it would be for anyone to go to hell when salvation has been made available. Acts chapter number 3. In a moment, we want to start uh, looking at verses 1 through 10. I'm going to go and kind of tell you as I'm introducing today. There's a lot in this. These 10 verses, it's going to be narrative. There's going to be an event, a story behind the event. Um, And... It's really going to be one of those weeks where we're going to hit this expositionally. We're going to kind of pull out four main thoughts. But I want to prepare you. You're going to feel like there's like lots of little mini sermons within the message. Because there's just so much. And believe me, we've deleted a lot on Thursday. A lot got deleted. So we've narrowed down to this. Here's where we're at. The Holy Spirit has descended on the 120 believers in the upper room on the day of Pentecost, the actual day that kicked off the Feast of Pentecost. And then they went out and uh, manifested the the Holy Spirit being upon them. And then ultimately Peter preached a sermon on the day of Pentecost that reached the hearts of 3,000 people. And the church went from 120 to 3,120 roughly, somewhere around that number. And then last week we saw what were they doing? What was the early church like? We noted that their devotion... And we noted their genuine love, and we noted their witness. So what were they devoted to? They were devoted, as you heard Deanna say earlier, we want to be like this. They were devoted to the truth of God being taught and learned and studied, in particular the apostles' teaching. They were devoted to each other. They were devoted. It's not a loose devotion. It's not a loose connection. Deeply devoted to each other, committed to each other, committed to eating and fellowshipping and worshiping, and even devoted to prayer. So much so were they devoted that when there was, we gave three reasons why there were some poor, many poor among them. Uh, Some unique circumstances. People just started selling their goods and putting it in like, hey, spend it where it's needed. And the needs were being met. And poor people, poor Christians in Jerusalem were having their needs met by other Christians selling their possessions and property. And then ultimately we found that the Lord is adding to the church daily those that were being saved. So every day, new people were joining the 3,000. And you're going to see pretty soon in the next chapter, there's going to be a new number that is given to us because the Lord is adding daily to His church. So if you have your Bible open and you're not relying only on the screen, you have an advantage because I want you to look back at verse 43 of chapter 2 because there was a little thing we didn't spend a lot on. It's not on the screen. Acts chapter 2, verse 43 And all came upon every soul, now watch this, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. Many, that's just a broad general statement. Okay, what does that even mean? What kind of wonders and signs? What does this many mean? So Luke is going to choose one of those, and he's going to give us an example of a, a wonder and a sign that the apostles did. And he's going to show also, as we move into next week, how the Lord uses this to increase 
the number that's coming into the church daily. So with that as our background, uh, let's look at verses 1 through 10. Now Peter and John, Peter and John, so there's 12 disciples, and they're all in Jerusalem. But on this occasion, this is just one of those instances, Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. So they're going to the temple together. It's the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. That's not our ninth hour. It's their ninth hour. But here's the real story. And a man, lame, so he's crippled, a man lame from birth. This is not an accident. This is a birth defect. A man lame from birth was being carried. So the timing is near perfect. They're heading that way. And this guy's just getting to his spot. A man lame from birth was being carried, whom they laid daily. We don't know, are they friends? Are they family? Are they just helpers? Whoever they are, whoever these people, they were very faithful because they did it daily. And they're very wise. They're very smart. A man lame from birth was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple. But not just any of the gates. There's several gates going in toward the temple complex, getting deeper into the temple. They laid this man daily at the gate that is called the beautiful gate. Why? To ask alms, money, charity. Alms, alms. So they do this so that he can ask alms of those entering the temple. As they're going into the temple, alms, you spare some money, please. Verse 3. Seeing Peter and John. Here's the timing. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. And Peter directed his gaze at him. So rather than do what, let's be honest, most of us do when we see someone begging, uh, we're probably going to avoid eye contact, try to look the other way and act like we don't see them there, avoid that awkwardness. Verse 4, Peter directed his gaze. You have have notes over to the side. Some of you already checked that. The ninth hour is what time? 3 p.m. So here's how they do it. They start their day at 6 a.m., so the third hour is 9 a.m. Now, hang close. Watch this. It's important. Third hour is 9 a.m., the sixth hour is noon, and then the ninth hour is 3 p.m. This is the 3 p.m. Why did they do this? There were hours of prayer throughout the Jewish day, and they gleaned this from the Old Testament. They didn't just have a time of prayer with God. They smattered their day with other specific times of prayer. And when the church began... They didn't just abort the temple. Remember the Lord said that my house, my father's house shall be a house of prayer. So anywhere that that comes across as a house of God or a temple of God, it should be a house of prayer. But here's my thought. I wish you had time to read this over and over like I did and try, try to think. Are there any questions from this? Here's one of mine. Let me throw it to you. The temple... Even the Holy of Holies on this occasion, the Holy of Holies, this physical building, and then there's the physical bodies of Peter and John. Which of the two has the greater, more special manifestation of God's presence in it at this time? The physical building, the Holy of Holies, or their physical bodies? Which of the two has the greater manifestation? Their bodies. Their bodies. So my thought is, The Jews knew they could pray anywhere. You don't have to be at the temple to pray. God's special presence behind the curtain, he had already withdrawn because of all the hypocrisy and the pride and the works that that infiltrated the Jewish system at this point. Now God has, 
it infiltrated their bodies and possessed them and filling them. And Paul's going to tell us, we are the temple of God. So my question is, why are they going to the temple? Why are they going to the temple? Why is Peter and John making their, making their way to the temple? And my mind went a few directions. Maybe, and I'm going to just be honest with you, this might be true. Because it doesn't say why they're going. Maybe being good fishermen, and Jesus has called them to become fishers of men. Maybe they've learned if you want to catch fish, you go where the fish are. And they may just be headed to the temple because it's almost the afternoon, the last hour of prayer, and the final sacrifice will be made. And that's when the temple's most full of Jews who need to hear about Jesus. So maybe they're going to preach. And by the way, that's what's going to happen on this day. They are going to end up preaching to a large crowd. That may be why, but I don't think that's why. I don't think they're going to preach. I think Luke, Luke doesn't just say, and they went up one afternoon, or they went at the ninth hour, 3 p.m. He says they went at the hour of prayer. So write this thought down. We're going to have a full note here, but start writing the first line. Peter and John refused to let the urgency of ministry keep them from prayer. This is one of the things that the Lord spoke to me about. Peter and John absolutely refused. We're not going to let the urgency of ministry keep us from prayer. We're still going to make prayer a high priority. Now think about this situation. The church has just gone from 120, let this sink in, to over 3,000 literally overnight. Not like, yeah, it happened overnight. No, it, literally overnight. One day. Do you think there's a lot of administration? Do you think there's a lot of mobilization? Do you think there's a lot of organization? It, things need done. There's much to do. There's a lot of teaching to do, a lot of preaching to do, a lot of ministry, and it's urgent. But these two men, what we're going to find is a pattern. They're never going to let ministry stand in the way of prayer. Refuse to do it. I want to be that way. I strive to be that way. Here's, here's, here's the situation. I'm looking at a group of people. I mean, every one of you. I don't care if you are single, married, a stay-at-home, you're in school, retired. Here's what I know. Your schedule, whatever it is, is screaming for your attention, and it's trying to squeeze out prayer. Mine too. When I arrive here, you probably think, well, Jeff gets paid. He probably prays five, six hours a day. I wish, probably need to. But ministry, in my heart and mind, wants to squeeze out. I'm telling you, I want to start my day in prayer. I want to start my day. And every now and then, something comes up as I arrive, and it's like, oh, that needs a dress. And it's like, but I don't want to let that, well, that took up the time I had allocated for that, so just guess I lost it today. Nope. Now I need to go in there and move everything else back and block this off, and I need this. I don't want to ever lose that. Keep that in your life too. Don't let anything squeeze out prayer. It is so vital. Now let's continue in our thought. We need to be like Peter and John. So here's, I know there's a group of about 15 women that are going through this or will be going through this thought, and I'm not going into all of that. Why? I'm just going to say it. I'm going to throw it out there. And I hope somebody takes this home and starts implementing what we're about to talk about. We need to be like Peter and John so that our primary, and hang with me, our primary closet prayer 
your closet prayer that's just you and God, I'm going to propose to you that this was not Peter and John's primary closet prayer. Why? This is in a public setting. They're going to pray. Are they going to just happen to be walking together? I'll see in a little bit. And he goes over there to pray by himself. And this one goes over. Or are they going to go pray together? Or are they going to meet a small group of people? And they're going to pray together. Or is this a big planned church event? Hey, remember, on this day or every day we'll be there. We don't know the setting. All we know is that prayer is urgent to them. But this is not their private prayer. So here's the lesson. We need to be like Peter and John. In that our private, primary, closet prayer needs to be supplemented with additional times of focused prayer throughout the day. Why? So that we can truly experience and practice, as one monk from ancient times said, truly practice the presence of God. If we're going to really practice the presence of God, it is not enough to have a set-aside primary closet prayer. It needs to be supplemented and added to with additional times of prayer throughout the day. Now, if this was a message on prayer, the whole message, I would really dig down right here. And in my heart, here's I know what's the situation. I'm looking at a group of people, and there's many of you in the room. You do not have primary closet prayer you don't have it you need to start that but I'm also talking there's many in the room and you're like Jeff by God's grace I have a designated time where God and I get alone I'm calling you today and myself included we need to add to that picture just for a moment watch look this way I want you to picture a timeline let's make it seven feet long and the seven feet represents a day. And every foot, um, the seven feet represent a week. And every, every foot represents a day. And so there's, there's 12 inches and there's 24 hours. So every half inch represents an hour of our day. And so half inch, half inch, 12 inches, that's 24 hours. Watch. Wherever in the day, whether you're morning, midday, or evening, wherever those of you who have primary closet focused prayer... I want you to picture a timeline, and we're going to just put a dot, a ball, a little, a little burst of something, of ink, on that line. And what that represents is God encounters. That's a God encounter. So if you have one at that time of the day on this day of the week, and we come over, and you have another one there, and you have another one there, and another one there, and another one, and there you have your seven times in the week. That is awesome and great, and you leave that with an, if you really pray, you leave that with an awareness of God's presence. But if that's all you have, the longer you go through the day, before the next dot comes up, before the next God encounter, you are losing your awareness of God's presence. What if, what if three people today, it's, it'd be success for me to spend this long, if three people today will say, that's my takeaway, I'm going to do this, I'm going to set my phone. And I'm going to have my morning time with God, but I'm going to add to that. And long about maybe 10.30 or 10.45 or 11 o'clock, I'm going to set my alarm. And I'm going to just take four, three, three minutes, four minutes. I'm going to get really, really quiet. And as soon as that goes off, nothing else is going to stand in the way. And I'm going to get back along with God. And I'm going to become aware of His presence. And then that's going to go. And then long about 2.30 or 2.45 or 3, I'm going to do that again. And maybe along 8, 7.30, 7.45, 8 o'clock at night. And I'm going to just keep setting myself an alarm. What if throughout your day you did these additional times with God? Then you would find yourself connecting those dots 
And all of a sudden, there would be this like smattering of times where you'd just be walking with an awareness of the presence of God rather than, yeah, I'll see him tomorrow morning. I talked to him this morning. I'll see him tomorrow morning. Does that make sense? Why is prayer important? Because it's where the power is at. I don't know 100% who originally said it. I saw it in print by Michael Catt, who made the statement, no prayer equals no power. No prayer equals no power. Little prayer equals little power. Let me translate. You find, if, if whoever's in the room this morning, if you have no spiritual strength or a little spiritual strength, I'm, telling, I'm going to tell you why. You don't pray or you only pray a little. But he says, much prayer equals much power. You find a powerful, strong Christian, you're probably in the face of someone who prays a lot. Number two. Would you notice with me in verses two through five, and this will be our shortest point of the day, preparation for a miracle. Preparation for a miracle. We're not going to draw this out a lot. Verses 2 through 5. Verse 2. A lame man from birth. A man lame from birth was being carried whom they lay daily at the gate of the temple that's called the beautiful gate. So I want you to picture this. Look this way right quick. So you have the temple from your direction. So you have the temple. And over here is this mountain side. And, and then around the temple you have these courtyards. And each courtyard has a fence. And so the biggest courtyard on the outside, Gentiles could go into that. But then there's going to be a wall. And you have to go up steps to go further. And so the court of the Gentiles is ultimately going to lead into the court of the women where only Jewish women and Jewish men could go. And it's called the court of the women because there was another courtyard beyond that one that only Jewish men. So you had court of the Gentiles, inside of that the court of the women, and inside of that the court of the men, and and uh, the court of the Israelites. And then on the inside of that you had where the Levites and the priests could go and ultimately you went in where only a few of the higher priests would go and then ultimately the, the holiest of holies where only the high priest on one day of the year. So it gets more and more exclusive. This eastern gate, this, this beautiful gate was made of Corinthian bronze. Okay, it was, over, it was made out of, it was the most ornate according to the, the historian of the day, Josephus. He says of all the gates that went from the, from the court of the Gentiles up into the court of the women, this was the most ornate, and it was on the east side. So here's the tent. It's on the east side. And if, whatever you have in your mind, you don't have it big enough, I'll bet you. The doors are said to have been big, giant, 75-foot-tall double doors. Massive. And so we've all been to venues where it's time for the venue to go, and it's opening, they're opening the doors, and here come people flooding through. That's the scene. And so here we have this man, and we know four or five things about him. And number one, we know he's crippled from birth, birth defect. You don't see it in chapter 3, but we know from chapter 4 he's over 40 years old. So he's 40-something years old. He's never walked a day in his life. We know, number three, that he's poor because of his condition. And because he's poor, he's a beggar. Now listen, whatever your opinion is of begging, understand that it's in this day... There's no shame in begging. It's what they had. They would get some of the things from the temple and the donations and the offerings to the poor. But you know that they needed more than that. And so he had to beg. It's his only recourse. Think where you see begging today. Where do you see begging today? I thought about this. If someone is extremely poor, their first choice is probably, do I know anybody that is wealthy that will take care of me? If you do, then that takes care of that. Thank you, thank you, thank you. 
But if you don't have that and you've exhausted the government programs and it's still just not meeting the needs, and ultimately if it gets down like you have to beg. They're probably going to go to churches. They're going to rely. Would God's people help some? Could you help me out? And that happens. Another idea would be this. They're going to put themselves in positions where there's high traffic areas where people stop. Right? So high traffic areas where people stop. I can think of two or three. I can tell you one near White Horse Road, and I can tell you one near Panera. Right? Everybody knows that. Right? These people, it's not just where traffic's coming through, but they're going to have to stop for a moment. Why? Because they want to make that eye contact. That's key. This is what they're wanting. All right. This man has been brought, and by the way, another one is, is, is digital traffic, and that would be on social media today. You've got to get creative, and you're going to, you get desperate. It's like, oh, people are not physically there, but they're digitally here, so I'm going to put it here and ask for it in this platform. And you've got to do what you've got to do, right? Write this thought down. Beggars found the temple to be especially productive in their day, in this day. <clears throat> Why? Because of two groups of people that are going into the temple, especially at the hours of prayer. There's two groups of people. One is devout Jews are going into the temple, and the other is hypocrites are sometimes going into the temple. And this is a good spot to be. This was probably, other than knowing a very wealthy person that's going to help you out, I believe this man has the number one prime spot in all of Jerusalem. And it must be just known as that's, that, that's his spot. Maybe this is his time of the day. I don't know if he fluctuated the time of the day. This is his spot. Man, don't mess with that. That's that guy. He, he, he owns that. And this is like the best spot. It's right in front of the best gate that a lot of people would want to go inside through the beautiful gate. You say, what are the significance of these two groups? This is a great spot because hypocrites often are going to want people to be impressed with them, and so they may give him some money. That's between them and the Lord. I just appreciate your money. It spends. I need it. Take it from them. But the other is there's these devoted, devout Jews. What are they going? They're heading into the temple. Why? They're trying to go get in God's favor. They're going to offer sacrifices to get in God's favor. They're going to offer prayers to get in God's favor. They're going to be bringing God. These are my needs. What better way to approach the Lord than having just helped one of his poor people out of the nation of Israel at the gate? The last thing you want is to come to the Lord, please, 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 and get the impression from the Lord. Then if you want that from me, why did you just pass one of mine out there? So, yes, let's do that. And maybe, Lord, you saw I help them, I help them, you help me, and I'm there pleading and begging. So all of this is laying the groundwork of a preparation for a miracle. Number three this morning. Notice with me in verses 6 through 8, the main part of our message today. And that's the power in Jesus' name. Would you read verses 6 through 8 with me after you've written that? But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I have, what I do have, I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up. And immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with him, walking and leaping and praising God. There's a lot that comes out of this text. A lot of, they may not even sound all connected, but let's just ask the Lord. Each time we move to a new thought, Lord, would you just help this thought to sink within me? If you're taking notes, write this one down in verse number three. Luke writes, seeing Peter and John, verse three, about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. So that tells us something. Here's this 
this crippled man who's laying at the gate called Beautiful. And we're learning this. He doesn't just lie there with a bucket. They can see me. If they want to give, there's the bucket. He doesn't sit there with a sign. Please give. Thank you for anything that you're able to give. And there's the bucket. No, he's using his mouth. He's begging. The tense of the verb in verse 3 literally means he kept on asking. He kept on asking And I'm going to supply that, picturing this scene. He's using eye contact. When it says he asked Peter and John, it doesn't mean he's just sweet. Alms, alms, anyone? And they happen to be, you know, vaguely there. He's making eye contact with individuals. Charity, ma'am, sir, here come these two guys. Alms, do you happen to have any alms today? Charity, please, anything would be a help. He's making eye contact. Now, the unusual thing is that Peter gazes at him. He stops, and he gazes at him, and he tells the man, you look at us. And now they're now looking intently. Now, watch. If this has happened, and it's the hour of prayer, and perhaps hundreds of people are flooding into the beautiful gate, by looking, are y'all with me? Watch. By looking at Peter and John... He's no longer getting the eye contact and he's no longer getting the repeated alms, alms. He's he's now invested with them and he's willing to do it because he thinks he's going to get something. So he's no longer panning and making eye contact with other potential donors. He's vested here. And then Peter begins by saying, hey, look at us. I have no silver and gold. Well, then this is a waste of my time. I'm missing these people. Somebody might have, I could have been putting the eye contact on them, right? Is this a waste of time? Oh, no, it's not. Why? Simple thought, but I hope we get it. Don't, don't judge books by their cover. Don't judge books by their cover. Some of the worst books have the most attention-grabbing covers. And some of the best books just look plain. On this occasion, this man, but if you don't have any silver and gold, what do you have? They don't look the part. These two men, you couldn't, nothing special about them. I want to propose to you, I can't guarantee this. I know when we get to eternity, there's God, Father, Son, and Spirit. And where these other creatures that are around the throne of God in Revelation and other passages, where they rank, I'm not 100%. I know this. These two guys, this beggar is looking at, he has no clue. They don't have any silver and gold at this moment, but these are, I mean, they're two of the all-time most powerful people who've ever lived. I mean, at the top of the top of the list. Nobody on earth today is as powerful as these two men in the whole grand scheme of things. You say, well, they don't have money. They don't have money, but they have connections. They've got serious, powerful connections. But they don't look like it. Can we have our verse from Proverbs? I read this the other day, and I hope I'm not forcing this into today's text. I I was sitting, getting ready to have a a test taken out at the Edmund campus, and I was sitting there reading through Proverbs, and it was like, this one really stuck. Look at that. Have you ever noticed this? It's just, it's not even saying why. It's just... Solomon's writing some wise sayings. Here's what he says. One pretends to be rich, yet has nothing. 
Another pretends to be poor. Pretends to be poor, yet has great wealth. Have you ever seen either one of those? Could you picture that? Now, we know why the first one does. One pretends to be rich, but doesn't have anything. I've seen that. Someone wants you to buy into their business, so they buy a fancy watch. Buy the, and they wear the same set of clothes like every day to each new appointment because it's like, hey. But they're totally trying to fool people. Invest with me. Look how wealthy I am, but they're really broke and in debt. I know of no one that's done this, but I'm sure people go to 20th and 25th reunions and borrow somebody else's car and go buy nice, fancy, expensive clothes and put it on credit. And they're not going to be able to pay for it for a long time, but they're trying to give the impression, oh, yeah, I'm wealthy. And they're lying with their whole presentation. The second part of that verse, I don't understand all the reasons that Solomon's hitting at, but there are some people who pretend... Or maybe they're just like, the money doesn't move them, it doesn't affect them, they live the same, they dress the same. When I grew up, I remember going, my dad was in construction. I can't tell you how many times. This happened over and over and over in the early to mid to late 80s before I went to Bible college. My dad had a brown GMC truck, four-wheel drive, and we would often pick up this man named, his name was Francis Stevens. Everybody in town called him Nib. And Nib was old. He was old, and he would piddle. He would piddle as a laborer, like on a job site, if we're digging ditches. He'd just piddle with a rake and piddle with a shovel. But by the end of the day, you'd actually look, and it's like, oh, he kind of dressed that whole area down. It's ready for seed. He just stayed busy. This man, when he would get my dad to swing by and pick him up, my brother's over there, and I'm in the middle, and there's my dad driving. We'd stop to pick up Nib because my dad needed a little extra labor or somebody just kind of work along on the job. Nib would get in. He'd throw this black plastic bag in the back, and it was full of stuff like, like really, some old clothes that he found, some clabbered milk that he got out of the dumpster, and some hairy-looking chicken, because we looked at it sometimes. Like, what does Nib have in here? And like hairy-looking, nasty old blue stuff on it, chicken that he literally got out of dumpsters. He lived absolutely like he was in poverty, but the word had it. My dad said, and others, oh, that guy's got money in banks all over Asheville. And I don't know what ever happened to Francis Stevens. My point here, why are you wasting my time? Do you even have anything that I need? Notice in verse number six, don't be fooled by appearances. The older I'm getting, I'm learning. Don't be fooled by appearances. Appearances change. They're not reliable. Peter had no money. But he did have one thing. He had a name. Stay with me. He had a name. What good's a name? He has the name of Jesus. Sounds great. What good is the name of Jesus Christ? Write this down. Warren Wearsby writes, A name carries with it authority. Reputation and power. A name often carries with it authority, reputation, power. I'm going to add to that. Not in your handout. A name represents the person. And it's the authority of that person, the power behind that person, that person's reputation. The name is associated with the person. Best way I can illustrate it, how a name has authority is I taught 21 years in a Christian school. Uh, and quite a few of my students, and a couple additional even visiting this morning. For most of my 21 years, 
my administrator, Brother Larry, the same way. My administrator was Dr. Wilkins. And I'm telling you, I could be teaching a class full of seniors in high school. Here I am an adult, seniors in high school. But if there's a knock at my door, knock at the door, and I can't even see through the glass window, and I open it up, yeah, come in, and it's some little second grader. There could be a second grader. And if that little second grader says, Dr. Wilkins needs to see so-and-so, you know what's going to happen? I'm going to do what the second grader says. <laughs> and the senior sitting in there is going to do what the second grader says. You want to know why? Because the second grader has the name. They got the name. And especially if they had a little piece of paper that had a little RW at the bottom of it. They got the authority. I'm going to do what the second grader says to do. They got the name. I don't have any silver and gold. But what I do have, I'm going to give it to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. He had the name. Write this down. What does the name do? In Jesus' name, there's power. We sang it about it a while ago. There's power to save. There's power to pray. There's power to baptize people in the name. There's power to evangelize. We have power and authority to evangelize people. We literally can conduct business for heaven because of the power in the name The reputation, the authority, the power that's attached to the person of the name. There's power in the name of Christ literally to defeat evil, to defeat sin, to defeat evil forces that you sense attacking you and opposing you. There's power in the name. One of the verses we're learning on Wednesday nights is John chapter 12, verse number, John chapter 1, verse number 12. So Jesus comes, the Son of God comes to His own people and they reject Him. But to all who did receive Him, listen, who believed in His name, He gave the right to become the children of God. How do you become the children of God? By receiving Christ. How do you receive Christ? By believing in His name. He's not standing here, but you have this name that's associated with the person. There's salvation. I'm going to heaven. I'm going to stand before I can tell God right now. I am planning on coming to heaven. Why? Because I have the name of Christ. Jesus, John's big on the name of Christ. John, that was John 1, John chapter 16. He says that Jesus says on the last night, talking about after his resurrection, he says in that day, he's telling his disciples, you will ask me nothing. But I say to you, whatever you ask the Father in my name, he will give it you. That's a big, that's massive. Whatever you ask the Father in my name, He will give it to you. That's big. You need my name. You don't just go pray on your own. You better go with the name. When these folks get baptized here very soon, what are they doing? They're saying, we are associated with Christ. Write this thought. It finishes your note. To claim Jesus' name is to claim a close connection with Him. It's to claim a close connection, a close association with Him. He's with me. So, Father, I am planning on coming to heaven. Why? What makes you think you're going to heaven? Because Jesus is with me. Father, I want to pray, and I expect to be able to pray. You told us to come boldly. Who do you think you are? I'm with Christ. Oh, and He's with me. When these people go up here, again... What they're saying when they get baptized is, I am closely connected. I am associated with Jesus. And I want everybody who sees my baptism to know of my close association. 
Lord willing, it'll take some time. Now listen, when we get to chapter 19, we're going to find seven men who are going to try to use the name of Jesus to cast a demon out of somebody's body, out of a man. There's going to be a demon-possessed man, and they're going to say, by the name of Jesus whom Paul preaches, trying to cast this devil out. You know what the devil's going to do? The devil's going to talk back to them, and he's going to say, Jesus I know of experience. Paul I know of, but I don't know you. And you know what happens? Because they have no close connection, and they just try to claim the name without the connection. That man that is demon-possessed is going to jump on them and whip them and wound them and they're going to run fleeing out of the house when you claim the name of Christ you're saying I have an association with Christ notice next thought this is a separate thought and I hope you'll get it I'm going to ask you to look at verse 6 at the second part of the verse look at verse 6 I'm going to ask you to notice the precise order by the way I didn't read this anywhere, and I hope I'm on safe ground. I'm going to throw it out to you confidently. <laughs> Did you catch what I'm saying? I wouldn't die for what I'm about to say. Out of the, Actually, I would die for the truth. I do believe in this truth. But there's something subtle here that stood out to me, and see if you see it. That's why I ask you to pay attention to how did you picture this right hand. Look at the end of verse 6. Note the order. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. Peter says this. What happens next? And he took him by the right hand and raised him up. What happens next? And immediately his feet and ankle bones were made strong. Did you see the order? In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. He's grabbed by the right hand in some way. Then immediately his feet and ankle bones receive strength. How do you picture the right hand? Is this man laying here? Do you picture this? In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. Come on, get up. It's time for you to get up. And then that would mean that Peter's left-handed. Come on, get up. I don't want to. No, you get up. Is that what you picture? That's not what I picture. What do y'all picture? Do you picture the lame man doing this? Do you picture Peter doing this? Hey, hey, in the name of Jesus, rise up and walk. Is that what you picture? That's what I picture. And then this man... And then off we go. He said, okay, that's great. This is not what happened. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And immediately his feet and ankle bones receive strength. And then Peter reaches out his hand. And then he grabs it. And then he stands up. Because he felt. He felt the strength coming in. He says, yeah, okay. Here's my point. Peter says, look, look, hey, hey, hey. Don't worry about them anymore. You look at me. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. Right about now, this man could be thinking, do you not know who I am? Dude, I'm 40-some years old. I'm not, I can't walk. What do you mean? He could have thought, is this a hoax? Are you trying to make a joke out of me? You're going to try to raise me up. I'm going to fall back down. You know what's going to happen? Fracture my wrist, I'm gonna bloody my elbow, I'm gonna fall on my face, you'll get a big laugh. I'm humiliated. He doesn't do that. Peter does this, and it seems to me the man reaches out his hands, and then the Bible says, and immediately his feet and ankle bones receive strength. Jeff, you sound real like this is important. What's your point? The wording 
catch it, the wording implies that his feet and ankle bones received strength as he's being lifted up. Why is that important? If that's the case, that tells me this man responded in faith before he felt the promise coming true. He responds in faith before he felt the promise actually happening. The word has been spoken. And everybody catch what I'm saying. I'm splitting hairs right here and I want to be real careful. I am not saying (laughs) that this man's healing was totally based on his faith. Because here's what we're going to find. Pretty much all the healings, there's going to be a resurrection of a born again woman. But all the healings in the book of Acts are on unsaved people. It is not riding on their faith. But now I'm going to try to make a point here. So I'm not saying the healing itself is dependent on this man's faith. What I want you to write down is that the healing was given, but his actual experience of it in his life, he had to have faith. It's a subtle little line. He reaches out his hand in faith before he feels it. He hasn't felt the promise coming true. And that's a principle that I find all the way through the New Testament. In many ways. Why don't you write that quickly? Because I want to give you three quick examples of how that same principle this man is illustrating for us. One of the first ways is the following. And it's the most important. Boy, I'm going to give you a moment. That's a lot of words. Who makes these notes anyway? Who gives people notes with 10 or 11 blanks in them? I mean, really. It's because I don't want you to sit there and guess the blanks. I want to make it hard on you to have to guess the blanks. I want you to have to listen. This one is 13? Is it really? That's a lot. They don't use, not usually that many. Hi. All right, here we go. You ready? Watch. This man's already exercising faith, acting on it before he feels it. Before he feels the... The promise has been made. The healing's been declared, but he hasn't felt it yet. Three things. Watch. Number one. God has said that Jesus' death on the cross... Is enough to pay for all your sins. It was for you. It was for your sins. It is enough. You don't bring anything. You don't add anything. If you, as as Anthony was telling us, if you try to add anything to the grace of God, you've made it no longer grace. You've canceled it. You've now made it a deal. It is enough if you'll accept it. But just hearing that, and the pronouncement's been made, you will not have salvation until you actually hear that As God is telling the truth and you respond upon it. Wait a minute. So all that's left for me to do is to decide to receive the salvation. God's already made the promise. But I don't feel. No. You just receive salvation before you feel it. The feeling is going to come later. And it's great. And the feeling may come and go. It's I know God can't lie. He said Jesus' death is enough. All we have to do is receive it. And so Lord, I'm doing that right now. At this moment, I'm doing it. For me, that was 1979. Second thought. And I'm not the only one. In fact, anyone in here who's ever tried to pray consistently, you have found yourself in the same place I was at this morning at 5 o'clock. 
You ever tried to pray and at first you don't sense the presence of God? You've been there. Those of you that actually try to pray, there are times where you're just like, what do you do? Well, I guess it's just not a good day for prayer. Try tomorrow. No. You say, Father, I don't even sense you yet, but I have the powerful name of Jesus. And so I'm just going to go ahead and start talking to you. You're everywhere. You're in this room. You're right in front of my face. I cannot slip a thought past you. So I'm going to go ahead and talk to you, knowing that you hear me. And though I don't, oh, and here's what happens. Knowing that I don't even sense you. And, and Oh, there you are, Lord. Yeah, I just wanted you to start by faith. Before you feel it, I want you to just begin by faith. And here's a third. Every Christian in the room has victory over all sin in their life. But there's a lot of Christians in the room that feels like, no, Jeff, there's this one. And I just can't beat it. And you don't feel like you have victory over it. Listen, you do. Romans 6 says you do. If you're living defeated by some certain sin, it's because you're waiting on a feeling of victory or some, some formula. It's already been declared. You do not have to submit to that sin. You can, an unsafe person can't resist. You have the power. It is not your boss. Don't wait on the feeling. You just by faith know you find a Christian who defeats sin in their life, and you're finding a Christian who maybe not always feel victorious over sin. They just live victorious over sin. Notice quickly, I have just a few more thoughts out of the third point, and we'll move to our fourth. Out of verse 7 and 8, did you notice the completeness of this man's healing? Verse 7, he took him by the right hand, raised him up immediately. His feet and ankle bones were made strong. And he, he leaping up, stood. He'd never stood. He began to walk. He entered the temple with him, walking and leaping and praising God. What's our thought? This is very simple. These next couple are super simple, but they need to be stated. Notice he doesn't stand up and he's not wobbling. Notice he's not testing the leg. He's not hanging on over here to, well, don't, don't, don't leave. It's not like, here's, here's a pair of crutches. I know you, you've never been able to use crutches. Now you can use, thank you so much. I've never been, no. He's standing strong. He's without a prop. He's not wobbly. He's walking it took us weeks to learn how to walk. This man does not need to learn how to walk. It's all part of the miracle. When the power of Jesus Christ healed this man, it healed him two things. Instantly and completely. Instantly. Completely. Not shaky. Not needing assistance. He's moving steadily and strong. That's the power of Christ to heal. That's the way the New Testament healings... These two apostles are not healing psychosomatic diseases and ailments and pains through the screen. These are real things that everybody knows are confirmed. Just a few more thoughts on third note. I told you it was a long one. Look at verse 6. Alms. Alms. Hey, hey, look at us. Yes? These guys are going to give me something. We don't have any money. I don't have any silver or gold. But what I have, I'm going to give you. I'm going to give you what I have. I don't have that, but I'm going to give you what I have. If I could have your attention for a moment, I want to ask you, everybody in the house, don't answer out loud, but answer, start naming specific items, specific things. What do you give God. Start making a list in your mind from basic things. What 
do you give God? What do you give God? You started your list? What do you give God? If you're thinking, well, Jeff, I'd love to give God large sums of money. I don't have large sums of money. You're not answering my question. Jeff, I'd love to, man, I'd, I'd love to be able to sing like all these people here, play an instrument. I just don't have that talent. You're not answering the question. I'd love to get up and preach to thousands of people. That'd be great. That's just, that's not me. Yeah, it would be great. It's not me either. You know what we often do? We think about what we don't have. I want you to think about what you do. I don't have large sums of money. Are you faithful to give to God with what you do have? Do you return back to the Lord a portion? Or do you just think, I don't have lots of silver and gold, so I can't give. I want to invite everybody, all Christians, to start thinking this way. I'm going to start thinking less about what I don't have, and I'm going to start giving God what I do have. Hey, can you be just a one-on-one private soul winner? Can you do that? I'm I'm never going to preach up there. I'm never going to sing. That's fine. I'm never going to teach a class. That may be true. We don't know. Can you talk to one person about their soul? Can you find some young Christian that needs discipled and mentored and encouraged and start working with that one person? Can you be an exhorter? Can you be that person that just listens and gives timely, wise words, fitly spoken, wise counsel back to someone? Can you be the person who say, I'll tell you what I can do. I can come into this house every time we have a service, and I'm going to be just a friendly person. I'm going to be the one. They're not going to walk away. Nobody's going to walk in those doors without hearing from me that's a guest. I'm going to be friendly to them. Can you be that? Can you be that compassionate ear? The disciple maker. Can you be the prayer warrior? Man, we need some prayer warriors. Two more quick thoughts. Look at verse 8. And leaping up he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with him walking and leaping and praising God. Walking and leaping and praising God. Why is this man praising God? This is, this is so simple. Why is he praising God? Well, it just so happened we have a reporter on scene. She's with WJLM. Right there in the temple. Excuse me, sir. You seem really excited. Woo! Yes! What are you praising God for? I can walk! That's great. You know, all of us can walk too. But you take it for granted. And I don't. It means everything to me. It's so simple. I I, I could not preach on this and skip this thought. It's so simple. And I know I hit this probably four or five times a year. And people probably think I'm nuts when I do it. Just being able to walk was grounds for this man to praise God for his power and his kindness to him. This is a big deal in his world. Because here's what I find. We are prone to take for granted being able to walk, being able to see, being able to hear, being able to taste, and being able to think clearly. I want everybody, I know you're writing a note, I want you to listen. It is a fact. If I live here long enough on this earth, and today may be my last day that I walk. Could happen. If I live here long enough, I'm not going to be able to walk someday. I don't want to wait till it's gone and think, man, I remember the good old days. 
When is the last time you, you say, Jeff, really, come on, that's what you got out of this passage. Yes, when is the last time you have told God, God, thank you that I can walk. God, thank you that I get to see. Lord, thank you that I get to hear. Because we, we take it for granted until it's gone. No, no, it really, really means a lot now. Thank you that I have my mind. Today I have my mind. I think I do. Nobody tells me I don't. So I'm assuming it's still I have my right mind. Thank God for that. Don't take it for granted. Stop taking it for granted. Do it often. Often. I like to do that. Lord, thank you for the truck. Thank you for her Explorer. Thank you for his Accord. And for her Hyundai. And for his Fusion. And for, like, literally, and for this. And those guys that came and put this floor in. Lord, thank you for that. And this running water and this hot water. I, I literally, I don't do it every day, but... Lord willing, in a week. Name things. We take too much for granted. We assume. And my last thought on the third point is this. It's out of verse 6. We're going to return to that phrase. I have no silver and gold, but what I have, I give to you. I'll give you what I have. Watch. This man wants money. Peter doesn't have money, but he's like, I got something a little better than money. Because I'm going to give you some principles. Physical healing outranks money. You will probably struggle with this for a moment. This man would not. Sir, choice. You want a quarter million dollars? Or you want to be able to walk? I want to walk. What would you take for your legs? There's no price. Give you five million dollars. We get to cut your legs off. Five million dollars. No thank you. No thank you. Peter gave him something better than money. Physical healing is better than financial assistance. But, Jeff, what's your point? That's not it. It's this. What's better than physical healing? It's called eternal spiritual life. Now I'm talking to all the Christians in the house. If you're not a Christian, you still should pay attention. All Christians pay attention. If you are a true Christian, you have the knowledge. We need to work on getting better at sharing our faith we need to train how to share the faith but if you are a Christian you have crucial facts vital facts you have the best thing do you give what you have hey I don't have any money and there's no healing in my hands and if the Lord chooses that is great but up till now he's never given me the ability to heal people by even claiming the name of Jesus I tell you all I do have is this knowledge though that there is eternal life available and if you don't have it you're going to eternal hell But everybody needs to be saved. And everybody can be saved through Jesus. But you have to hear the gospel of Jesus. You have to believe it. You have to understand it. You have to agree with it. And you have to depend upon it. You have that knowledge. If you're a Christian, you have it. You may not know perfectly how to share it all. But you have it. Here's my question. Are you sitting on it? Are you giving what you have? Are you giving what you have? I was talking to him Wednesday night. And I told him I might share this. I'll go ahead and do it. If you're a Christian... You are sitting on crucial, vital facts. And somebody in your life, somebody in your life needs to hear the facts you know. You say, well, Jeff, we're saved by faith. And that's why you need to share the facts. Because faith is not just faith in anything. It's not faith in nothing We're saved by faith in something, someone, and you have the information. 
We're not saved by, again, faith in nothing, faith in anything, or faith in faith. Faith in faith? Jeff, what does that even mean? It's this. Hey, I know I'm a Christian. I know I'm going to heaven when I die. Oh, that's great. Do you mind if I ask you how you know? I mean, I appreciate that. I love that. It's kind of my job in life. I'm here for this person. Can I ask you how you know you're going to heaven? Oh, because I believe. Okay, that's great. What do you believe? I believe what the Bible says. The Bible says you get saved by believing and by having faith. And I believe and have faith. Right? You said it. But what do you believe? I believe I'm saved. What? I know I'm saved. Yeah, why? I know I'm saved because I believe I'm saved. We're saved by faith. And I have faith that I'm saved. Is that going to get anybody to heaven? No. They need some facts. And you've got them. Hey, I don't have that. I don't have that. I'll give you what I do have, though. All I have is the most important thing you need. Number four. It's in verses 9 and 10. It's the effect of a changed life. The effect of a changed life. Verse 9, and all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. Rewind in your mind. I, I remember it. We actually have a video of it. It was 1977. Been a long time since I've used one of the bear hunting stories. And Garrett and Samantha are going to probably think he still tells all the bear hunting stories. Hadn't told one in a long time. But I will this morning briefly. My brother killed his first bear. He was 10. It was October, I guess, of 77. I'm not sure. It might have been 78. I was either 7 or 8 years old. And we had this video. And it has no sound on it. Long story short, you see my brother. He's got his 30-30. And he ends up shooting, killing a bear. One shot. Great shot. My brother's crack shot. I stink. I'm not a good shot. Bear falls. Dogs fight. We get them all tied back. Somebody... Cuts the abdomen, does some minor field dressing, and now the trucks have been brought up. This is in the mountains, North Carolina. So it happens here, so the angle is here, and here's where the action is. And there's this road up here, and we've got to get the bear from here to there. And so someone starts traipsing up. Normally we'd have a whole team of people would drag, but this person just throws the bear and just starts launching up the mountain. 250-pound bear on, on the shoulder. And there's this man named Donnie Birchfield, and he starts coming zigzag down the mountain, and it's kind of steep, and it's like, oh, grab that little sapling, and then let go, and it's, the leaves are falling, so grab that little sapling, grab that little sapling, and finally, th they pass each other, and then you see Birchfield gets somewhere around here, and he looks at the bottom, and he sees my Uncle Dewey. My Uncle Dewey's arm, on the, his, his handle on the radio is, hey, big arm, how about you, big arm? And there's a reason he's called big arm. Birchfield's coming sliding down the mountain. This person takes the bear up on their shoulders past them. Birchfield assumes this is Dewey. But then he sees Dewey. And in the video, again, there's no sound. You see him come down and he goes, Then who's that? Oh, that's Randy, Dewey's son, 15 years old. 15-year-old Randy traipsing up the hill, 250 pounds. Like, and he's just like, Wandering amazement. How is he? Uh, it had to be. No, no, that's Randy, sophomore, ninth grader, sophomore. Who knows what he is? It's a big kid, big strong. 
What happens in verse 9 and 10, if you'll write this down, and is an example that illustrates the simplicity and the power of a changed life. Did I give you number four yet? Did I tell you the main point? I did. The effect of a changed life. So the first note under that is very similar. This illustrates the simplicity, the powerful effect of a changed life. You guys are like me. You watch TV and there's these commercials comes, comes on. What do these three things have in common that they're trying to sell you? Here's a diet plan. Here's a home gym plan. It's a home gym product trying to sell you. Over here's a hair replacement. Right? So you got diet plan, home gym, hair replacement. What do they all have in common? What kind of pictures are they going to show you? Here's the person before they did our diet. And here's... Marie Osmond after for the 33rd time. Why does she keep having to okay, and that's a different story. Before and after. Here's this guy before he used our home gym product. Now look at him. Is this the same? The same guy. Wow, that's amazing. Here's this person with thinning hair. Here's this person with this full head of hair. This is it's effective. They do it for a reason. It makes you I'm buying that. Yes, I want to look. I look like that and I want to look like that. I look like that, and I want to look like that. I look like that, and I want to look like that. I'm buying these things. It's effective. It's powerful. I love this quote, especially for the second line. Ivor Powell writes the following about the cripple man. Write it down. He says, the healed cripple had become a living sermon. The healed cripple had become a living sermon. Here's the line I like. One of his ecstatic jumps was more convincing than a thousand words. Just one of his jumps... More than a thousand words. Picture that. Every time this guy jumps, it's having an effect that is greater. New people are coming in. What's this guy all excited about? What? The, what the, and the guy be like, hey, that's the, yeah. And other people are like, yep, that's him. Pogo. Woo, shouting like, how in the, what in the world? What are they convinced of? Every time he jumps, it's worth more than a thousand words convincing them of what? The healer is alive. And there is power in the name of Jesus. Your last note is this. I'm going to give it to you in phases. You'll not see it all on the screen. Let's, let's just take a little bite and we'll move through and it won't take us but a moment. Genuine salvation always changes our life. Genuine salvation always changes our life. So hear me well. When a person trusts Christ, the book of Corinthians tells us they become a new creature. A new creation. When you get saved, when you trust Christ, you instantly become a new creation. And because you're a new creation, in time, that person is going to develop new passions and new pursuits and new behaviors. Let those three words sink in. New passions, new pursuits, new behaviors. Here's what that means. Didn't have these passions before. Now all of a sudden they got to say, didn't have these passions and now they do. Didn't have these pursuits and now they do. Didn't have these behaviors. And now they do. How does that happen? I'm going to tell you. Listen carefully. Romans 8, 29. 
Not only handout, but Romans 8, 29 says, For whom he did foreknow, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of Christ, so that he, Christ, might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. It's guaranteed. God says, those, verse Romans 8, 28, All things work together for good to those who love God, who are the called according to his purpose. So he has this purpose. And then God has foreknown these people who are going to fulfill the purpose. And those whom he's foreknown, foreordained, they are predestined. The, the destination is already pre-arrived at. God is guaranteed they are going to become more and more like Christ. It's going to take all this life. And then when they die, they're going to be like my son. It's guaranteed to happen. Why does this change new pursuits, new passions, new behavior happen? Because you can't have something as big as God come live inside of anybody and you stay the same way. You are going to change. Finish that thought. God uses those results to draw other people to be willing to hear the gospel because of the change in our life. God is using this guy. He is using this man. He's drawing people. And by the way, those that knew us before Christ, who knew us best, they're the ones who are going to most notice the change. So i got to ask you. It's another one of those long notes somebody wrote. but i got to ask you. Be thinking while you're writing, how has your life changed since you got saved? I mean, really, how has your life changed? If you've been saved a long, long time, how have you changed? You say, Jeff, you were nine. I don't think you were uh, a drug dealer, were you? No. Though there probably are some nine-year-old drug dealers these days. I wasn't. So how has your life changed? I'll give you an example. If you knew how painfully shy and introverted I was. Deanna knows me at age 18. She didn't see me at five or six. Stuttering. And my dad crying because of it. If you knew how, I mean, paralyzingly shy I was. What we're talking about is when somebody gets saved, there is a deep, core level change I could not do I couldn't just make up my mind I'm going to be different than I am I couldn't that's an example that God has changed me how have you changed and then my last thought may be for one person here it may be for one and then then we'll close our eyes for a moment here's the thought God's ways are mysterious this, this may be, you may be this your thought, so pay attention. God's ways are mysterious. This man lived over 40 years without being able to walk. Let that sink in. Little baby, he becomes a year old. Other kids are starting to walk. Did they know immediately? Was something deformed with his legs? We don't know. Did it take time? Wow, he's not like, now he's five, he's ten. He's not like the rest. He's dragging around, he's having to be carried. He's 15, others are starting to work. He's 20. They're really growing up. They're moving into the apprenticeship. He's 25. He's 30. His peers are now running their own companies and their own, their own businesses. Now he's in his 40s. He's never walked a day in his life. All oh, the frustration and the pain. Why? He committed no sin. Nothing is said of his parents having sin, and this is punishment. 
There is no specific sin. We know all pain and sorrow and death happens because of sin and Adam and what we've inherited in our own sin. I get that. But this specific thing was not a result of any specific sin. So this is horrible. And God's in control. Why does he let this happen? Here's what I'm going to tell you. I don't know what else good came out of this man's lameness for 40-some years, but I know on this day, the name of Jesus was glorified. A crowd of people are going to be there next week. A crowd of people are going to be gathered. They're going to hear the gospel, and many are going to get saved. There are people in heaven today because they believed in the name and the power in the name of Jesus because they saw it exercised in this man that they know for a fact sat there year after year. This is not fake. He sat there for decades and begged for money. God used him. And so, I'll tell you this morning, it was worth it. Why? Because a crowd of people heard the gospel and got saved. It was worth it. Now, there's some of you that are thinkers. Jeff, easy for you to say it was worth it. You didn't live his life. Okay. When we get to heaven, you find him. Let's go together. We're going to go find him and let's ask him, was it worth it? And I promise you, he's going to say it was absolutely worth it. Because he's going to have the eternal view. Lazarus has to die twice so Jesus can be glorified. Job in the Old Testament just gets crushed emotionally and physically. He just wants to die. Begs God, just kill me. That's a bad place for a long time. We read Job. and We learn a lot. and We draw a lot. And it encourages some. It discourages others. Why is this happening to this godly man? Not for sin. It's so God can win an argument and a debate with Satan. But ask Lazarus and Job when we get there. And you know what Job will say? I'm glad he did it. Now. Somebody here this morning, you've had something or you are currently having something in your life. And here's your thought. I cannot see any good coming out of this, and it has caused so much pain. Why has God allowed this? I can't answer your question. And I'm not going to say the pain's going to go away. Here's what I'm going to ask you to do. Don't lose your faith. By faith, know God is working. I don't see it, but I'll promise you this. promise you. If this is untrue, then you come hit me in the mouth when we're in heaven. We'll step outside the gate, and then you can hit me, and then we'll go back. <laughs> I'll promise you this. You may not know the reasons why, but when we get to eternity, it's going to be unfolded what God is doing in that thing that you see. I just don't see any purpose. And I'll promise you this. Then you will be glad. You'll be glad. You say, not for this. Yes, you will. You'll be glad. Supplement your prayers. Supplement. Use the name of Christ in your evangelism, in your prayer, in your living to defeat sin. Give God what you have. Give Him what you have. Don't worry about it. I don't have that. He knows what you have and what you don't have. Give Him what you have. And give everybody else out there the best thing that you have. And regularly thank God that I can walk and I can see and I can hear and I can taste and I can think. Thank you, Lord. Would you stand? Thank you, Lord, for your blessings. Would you go with us this afternoon? Let us be a thankful people. Let us be a people that rely upon the name of Jesus. Let it be found often on our lips.
Let us love you and love each other this week. Let us share the best that we have with those that need it. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.